0: Now, I don't want this to trigger anybody, or you know, be a remembering of a traumatic event. But I am curious. Anybody here ever been the victim of identity theft? Anybody? Oh, I see some hands. Not fun, is it? Not fun at all. In fact, it's quite the pain. That uh, you know, it's it's a pretty big problem here. I don't know if you guys know this, but as I was reading about it this week, identity theft happens in this country every 22 seconds. Isn't that wild? every 22 seconds it happens. In fact, the statistics showed that one third of Americans will face this at some point in their lives. So if you haven't experienced it, get ready because some of us are. That's really encouraging. Thanks for being here today. They're lifting you up here. In 2022, $3.8 billion were lost because of identity theft. Billion with a B. And there were 2.4 million fraud reports. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that wild? All because somebody wants to try to steal somebody else's identity and make credit cards, run up credit card debt, all that fun stuff. I was looking into this because I thought, you know, there's gotta be some interesting stories out there about identity theft, and there are. Got a few to share with you. Like this guy here, he's a 51-year-old man in Brooklyn named Thomas Parkin, and uh, he dressed up as his dead mother, Irene, for six years so that he could continue to collect her social security checks. Uh, He would wear a wig, heavy makeup, and wear her dresses. That's commitment to the cause, right? I mean, that's, that's commitment right there. This next one is, her name's Esther. She picked up the identity of three individuals to get into three universities, two of them which were Ivy League schools. One of them was Harvard, and she was able to collect more than $100,000 in student loans. That's amazing. Or this, this next one will just blow your mind. I just honestly almost can't believe it's real. This guy's name is Ferdinand DeMara. He stole the identity of a surgeon. He ended up on aboard board a Navy destroyer and was tasked to carrying out multiple life-saving surgeries. Just before the surgeries, he memorized the procedures out of a medical textbook and surprisingly all the patients survived. Well, at least he did it right, you know? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Now I didn't have my identity stolen, but one time I was the victim of mistaken identity. I remember I got a call and some things in the mail about some things sent to collection from a hospital in town. This was back in Arkansas. And I thought, we haven't had children in a few years, so I mean, what's going on? We you know, hadn't been to the hospital. And uh, I called them and I'm like, what is this about? And they tell me and I'm like, I'm sorry, that's not me or anybody in my family why has this bill been given to me? And what we discovered was that there was another guy in the area named Brent Clark. And that was his bill. You may not know this. I'm often mistaken for Kate and Clark's dad as well. The basketball player, we get her mail all the time because her dad is Brent Clark. But you know what was so agitating about this was I couldn't just pick up the phone and call the hospital and say, hey, I'm not that Brent Clark. Now, I didn't do anything to get them to assign that medical bill to me. They just did it on their own. And yet, for some reason, to get this off me, I had to go up there and prove who I was. You didn't need any proof to give it to me. You just gave it to me. But so I had to take off work and drive to, because you know, they were only open like nine to five during business hours. I had to drive up there, show them my ID and prove I'm not that same person. And it did finally get resolved. And I guess, you know, sometimes mistaken identity can be fun. If you're mistaken for a celebrity, maybe that's good if there's some benefit to it. But otherwise, stolen identity, mistaken identity, often is just more of a hassle. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, identity is kind of important to us, isn't it? I mean, it can even become quite contentious for us as adults as we navigate, you know, ethnic, cultural, and national identities. We want to know how contentious it can be. I'm just going to say three words and the tension in this room is going to really rise, really a lot. Critical race theory. Whoa, tension just explodes. Why? Because it makes us nervous because no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, you realize that that talks about identity and who you are and that makes us nervous and we all have strong opinions about that. But have you thought about like with our kids, like where we start teaching them about identity? I mean, I think about with my own kids. Anybody ever remember the silly little game, guess who? Yeah, guess who's a fun little game? But what do we teach our kids through that? If you're bald, is your character bald? Does your character have a mustache? Do they wear glasses? And you ask all these identifying questions, but really it's more physical than anything else. And what happens is we start with guess who and then we grow up and we work at places that have those silly little icebreaker or team building games where you see that other picture where you stick a name on your forehead or on your back and you have to go around and ask questions to get them to tell you who that is. That is a picture from a very awkward uh, episode of The Office called Diversity Day that's very irreverent but quite funny. But you know, it's one thing to have your identity stolen. It's one thing to be mistaken, you be a victim and have to fix it. Spend months or even years trying to get it fixed. And mistaken identity can be painful and possibly fun. But what happens when we simply don't live up to or into our identity? What happens when we don't really know who we are? If we're trying to figure out our identity to understand what makes us up, Someone doesn't have to steal it. We just don't know it, or we don't believe it, or we just ignore it. And you may think, well, what in this world? Well, this is exactly where we're going today in this letter that Paul wrote to these churches in the area of Galatia in the first century. And then we call it our, the book of Galatians in our Bible. I know it's a clever title, but we're looking at how these Jesus followers... They'd heard the message of Jesus, they believed it, they were following Jesus, only to have some agitators come along and convince them that they really hadn't done enough to be in with Jesus, that there was more steps to the process, that they had to become Jewish. That was the whole point. And so for the past three weeks, we've been trying to make this case, the case that Paul has been making, that they had done enough. That there was nothing else required or expected of them except to believe the message of Jesus its life and death and resurrection. And so as we continue looking at what Paul is writing, we're going to really understand, I think, his frustration today. Not just that they didn't believe him, but what they were willing to give up. Why was he so frustrated? It's because they were willing to just drop, um, give up the message that he had and add on all these religious rules thinking that was going to make them more acceptable rather than just trusting in the work of Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, we're gonna see that Paul wants them and us to understand it really does change our entire identity. Everything that we may stake our claim on and say, well, I'm this and I'm that, Paul's going, you need to back up because there's really one thing that is very critical, something that will transform you, something you can't get on your own effort. And that's a good thing. So let's start. We're gonna pick up kinda where we left off last week, the end of Galatians chapter three. Look at what Paul says. He says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now faith, uh, Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Remember, Paul is telling them, That they had to set aside this idea of working or earning salvation, obeying the law to be religious. Paul repeatedly tells them that this came as the result of what Jesus did. So stop trying to earn it. In fact, Paul takes them back and he takes them to an image they would have been very familiar with in the Greco Roman world. He talks about this idea of a guardian. Guardian could also be a tutor or babysitter. The Greek word is called uh, pedagogos, which literally means child leader. And what this is was at the time there would be a slave in the household who supervised and guarded the children. Their responsibility was to walk with them, you know, get them to and from school, make sure they acted right, and make sure they stayed out of trouble. And Paul uses this to communicate that the law did something similar we talked about that last week that part of the law was restriction to keep you out of trouble don't do stupid things that's what the law was there for but in this moment where paul was talking like this he's saying look that's what the law did for you it was your guardian but now it's time for you to grow up you don't need that type of guardian i mean as parents is there anything greater than when your kids get to the age Where you can leave them at home without you having to pay for somebody to come in and watch them. Can I get an amen? Amen. I mean, you know that the house is going to be a wreck, but you know, it's probably not going to be burned down and nobody's going to have knife wounds. So you can leave them there and go out without a babysitter. And how many of us would really be willing to go back to a babysitter? I mean, I can think this would go over really well with Carrie. Carrie, I've got to go to work today, but don't worry. I've got Eileen coming over to sit with you, to watch you, to make sure you stay out of trouble. She'd be insulted. And yet that's exactly what the people in the churches at Galatia were doing. They were saying, we don't trust ourselves. We're not grown up enough. We need that guardian again. And Paul is saying, look, you guys are missing this. You don't need a babysitter anymore. And why would you want one? And he's trying to remind them, don't go back to the way things were. Don't let that be sucking you back in because that is powerless. There's no real power to change anything. And he's saying, remember those experiences we talked about last week. Remember what you experienced in Christ, the spirit that has come. And don't forget the way things used to be. I mean, I can almost envision Paul even harking back to the Exodus story. You guys may remember that, you know, Moses comes on the scene and he leads the people out. These people were slaves for hundreds of years and you would think they get out of Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, you'd think there'd just be celebration. Whoo, things are amazing. But what did the people do? Oh man, we miss it. It was so much better back there. Oh, it was so good. And again, Paul's like, people, things aren't as good in the past as you think they are. In fact, there's something better before you. Grow up is what he's saying. And then he begins to talk about what growing up actually looks like. And he really attacks, not attacks, he really puts his finger on the pulse of I think where we as humans love to draw divisions and love to draw distinctions in the effort of making ourselves look better and feeling good about ourselves. And so he throws out three contrasting pairs. He talks, he says this, he says, in in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female for all are one in Christ. And we look at these divisions that Paul is addressing, and these really are the primary ways that we identify people, the ways we try to evaluate ourselves, the way we try to tell us, tell ourselves, you know what, this is what makes me better than other people. And Paul absolutely crushes this. Because he says, you know, here's the things. There's three things we're going to look at. He says, look, you can look at ethnicity and race. You can look at economic or social status. That's the whole slave or free. Or you can look at gender. And what's interesting about Paul attacking these three things is there's, there's recorded an, a, a morning Jewish pe- prayer. Now, this is a good one. I should have printed it out so you could take it home. This is going to be one. All you men are going to want to pray tomorrow. <laughs> Trisha Think knows what I'm going here. This prayer was at the time in the first century. Blessed be he that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be he that he did not make me a slave or an ignorant peasant. And blessed be he that he did not make me a woman. Amen. So you can see why I should print that out and give it to you. This would have been known at the time, something that people could have prayed in their morning. Well, obviously not you women would have prayed it, but the men would have prayed it. So you can see how Paul is maybe taking shots at the standard divisions that I think are so easy for us to, to lean into, starting with ethnicity and race. And now think about how difficult this would have been for the Jewish people to hear. We're the chosen people of God. Don't you know Abraham, he was special. I'm special. We're not like the Gentile dogs around here. We're up above that. What do you mean, Paul, that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile? He takes that wall and he just crushes it. He's saying to them, you know those Gentiles? They are welcome at the table just like you are. Those Gentiles, they have a right to be there at the, in, with the family of God just like you. And he tells them, this idea that you are superior because of where you were born, it's garbage. doesn't exist. Jesus removed that wall of superiority that we cling to. And then he moves to this other thing, an economic or social status, slave or free. The haves and the have-nots. I mean, it's easy for us with this one too, to begin to look at people, how they dress, what car they drive, where they work, where they live. I mean, you live in that neighborhood, you know, isn't that so easy for us to do sometimes where we just kind of look down our nose and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, this doesn't matter, but it's our nature to want to rank people. I mean, we don't have an official caste system in America, but there's no question. We have a class system. We have an upper class and a middle class. And a middle class isn't even good enough because we have an upper middle class and a lower middle class. And then we have a lower class. And this was a problem in the first century church as well. I mean, have you ever read like Paul's writing or James's writing in the New Testament where they say things like this? Stop showing favoritism. Just because somebody has money in the bank doesn't mean they get the best seats. It doesn't mean that you can leave out the poor people and the rich people get to come in and eat the Lord's Supper and there's nothing left over for anybody else. That was a common problem. If only we could say it wasn't as much a problem today. Paul is saying this barrier of social distinction is gone when we are in Christ. And then he hits a big one. Amazingly, I think one that we still struggle a little bit with today. He says there's no, no male and female. Now remember, patriarchal society, women, wasn't your, wasn't your time to be around. Why, because you needed a man for everything. You needed a man to rescue you and save you, and you were treated poorly with limited access to education, your status was based on the status of your man. And when Paul would make a statement like this, neither male and female, it would have sent shockwaves through the culture. You see, Paul gets a bad rap sometimes. It's often, sometimes people will look at Paul and say he was very anti-woman. He really wasn't. In fact, he was just the opposite. In this moment, he's saying, look, women, you get brought up to the status of men. You are equal, you're not less than. There is value just because you're you. You don't need to hit your wagon to a man to find your value. You know, we look at Corinthians and it says, oh, let women keep silent in the churches. Paul hated women. No, he didn't. Paul valued order in worship and there was chaos and he's trying to bring it in. You know, often in marriage ceremonies, pastors love wives, submit to your husbands. Amen, amen. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. We always forget to go back one verse where Paul says, mutually submit to one another. You know, in Corinthians, Paul makes the statement. He's talking about sex and marriage. And he says, the wife's body does not belong to her. And all God's men said, amen. And that would have been a no-brainer at the time. Everybody would have been like, yeah, that's, we know that, Paul. That's not news. And then right after that, and he says, and the man, the husband's body, no longer belongs to him. Wait, huh? Whoa, 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 whoa. Nobody can tell me as the husband what I can do with my body. And Paul says, oh, yes, that's what marriage is. It's together, mutual submission. And so we can't see Paul as this anti-woman person because what he does is he says just the opposite. He's like, women, you have value. You have value. You're not less than. And the fact that we ever thought you were is a really dark stain on our culture that we ever diminished you. In the community of Jesus, it's, we have to work to keep these barriers out because these are the things that Jesus worked to destroy. One commentary I read this week even talked about how of all the ancient religions in antiquity, Christianity was really the only one that encouraged the use of words brother and sister with people of different ethnicities and social positions and legal standing. What does brother and sister do? Levels the playing field, doesn't it? It brings things together. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, Paul is not saying here, be colorblind. blind. There's no distinction. No, there is distinction. There is distinction and that's okay. God created the distinction. God, I mean, just look around this room. Look at the uniqueness of every man and every woman in this room. God is an incredibly creative God. Some of us shows he has a great sense of humor, but God is incredibly, incredibly creative And he doesn't want us all to look the same and talk the same and act the same. It's not about uniformity. Jews were still Jews in this time. Females were still female. We're not advocating uniformity, but we must learn to realize that which draws us together is greater than that which draws us apart. And what is it that draws us together? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And I missed something here that I do wanna say. For some reason, when we begin to think about differences among us, why is it that it seems to be a mindset of ours that if I elevate someone else, I can only do it at the expense of devaluing myself? But that's how we see things operate, right? I can't acknowledge the good in you without thinking I'm going to be devalued. And that's just not even what happens. We don't lose anything when we bring others up. We don't lose our value just by elevating someone else. But I will tell you, we absolutely lose if we insist on devaluing others to make ourselves feel better. We've got to get beyond that. These barriers that are coming down, not the distinctions, but the barriers, and we've got to see in Christ, the, the, we're equal. The foot at the cross is level ground for all of us. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account, doesn't matter what car you drive, what clothes you wear, doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter your gender. We're reminded that we come to the cross on equal footing. Equal footing. And you know, when Paul is talking about all these things, not this, not that, not this, not that, Those are really the unimportant, not the important words in that whole thing he's saying. The two words that really are the most important is when Paul says, in Christ, in Christ, there is equality in Jesus. You know why? Because it reminds us that we are all in need of salvation, that we are all inadequate to do anything about it on our own, and we are all equal before God in the offer of the gift of salvation, period, the end. And what brings us together is so much greater than what brings us or could pull us apart. And it leads me to question, what is it then that maybe we're laying claim to as our identity that might be other than Christ? You know, we live in a day of adjectives. There's not just nouns. Everything has to have an adjective before it. I, I really get concerned anytime we want to put adjectives before Christ or Christian. Because there really shouldn't be anything that identifies us greater than being a Jesus follower. But as we look at what Paul is saying here, I did kind of skip over something that is pretty significant. And it kind of a, it's kind of an interesting thing. Matthew Becker came up to me afterwards and he says, you, did you see this? And I said, yeah, I didn't say anything, but because it almost seems like Paul's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. But let's look and see something else that Paul says. He's not just removing the barriers. He tells them this. He says, so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. Paul says, grow up. Don't, you don't need a babysitter anymore. But now he's saying, but you are now all children of God. And think again, he's talking to a mostly non-Jewish crowd. This would have been offensive. Or no, this would have been encouraging for the non-Jewish crowd, offensive to the Jewish crowd. The Gentiles questioning how Jewish they had to become to follow Jesus. And Paul saying, not at all. Not at all. He expounds on this, and I will tell you, the Bible, your Bibles that you have, you guys know that like the chapter headings and the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, those weren't put in by Paul. We know that, right? And sometimes they're put in in very inconvenient places. And I think this is one of these times because you've moved from chapter three to chapter four, but Paul is still talking about the same thing. Look at where he begins in chapter four, continuing with what he was talking about. He says this, he says, what I'm saying is that as, as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery and under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Is there anything more beautiful than those words right there? I mean, let's just soak in that verse that's on the screen right now. You are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. See to me, this is where this letter really hits hard. One of the critical points here. You're not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to the forces of this world. No longer having to worry about balancing those religious scales in your favor to do enough good works to get God to like you. Because what's this say? God loves you. And to prove it, he sent his son to redeem you. And then you don't miss those next words. Why? Because you are adopted. Adopted. Now, you guys know me. You know my family. Adoption's kind of a big deal to us. In fact, here's a picture from the last, the final adoption. No more after this one. (laughs) You know, four of our seven kids were adopted from foster care. I realize it means I'll be 61 when Julian graduates high school, but who's counting? But you know, we love our kids. Doesn't matter if they were born natural to us or adopted, it doesn't matter. This summer we had something unique happen though. Julian is the star of the neighborhood over here. It's amazing, doesn't matter how old you are, young you are, everybody in our neighborhood knows Julian. He ran that neighborhood all summer. Carrie was down at hy Drug one day, and there's a, a guy there uh, doing collections for like um, one organization. And Julian's walking in, and the guy goes, Hey, Julian. And Carrie's kind of like, How do you know my son? Everybody knows Julian. But, you know, we, uh, it's kind of obvious that he's adopted. I mean, I know I'm decently tan right now, but not quite that tan. But one of the kids in the neighborhood obviously noticed that Julian's African-American, and he, we're not. And so kids say stupid things. And one of the things the kid said to Julian this year was, you know, you know you're adopted. That means your mom didn't want you, you know. And this was a young kid, you know. And as I said, kids say stupid things. The parents were mortified. They called us and apologized. And it's, you know, we're not offended by that. We understand kids do stuff like that. But when Julian came home, you know, you know what our reaction was? Kind of like yours a little bit angry, you know, cause we don't want anybody diminishing our kids and, but we don't keep the adoption thing a secret. Wouldn't matter if we did, we talk openly about it. And so it gave us a chance to talk to him, to be able to tell him, you know, yeah, there was a woman that gave birth to you and she was not in a place to be able to care for you. And so you came home to live with us. And, you know, whereas with some of our kids, we didn't get to choose with you. We got to choose. We made the decision. We wanted you, you know, and of course he's just six, and so he's like, okay, and he's off, back off in the neighborhood. But you know, there's truth there. He's my kid, and I don't care what his skin color is. I don't care if he was born naturally and I was in the delivery room or not. At this point in the game, none of that matters. When Carrie and I have set up our will and we've talked about things that will happen in the future, my will doesn't go, you know, more to the natural born kids than the adopted ones. No, it's divided one seventh, straight down the middle. I'm sure my bio kids are like, great, thanks a lot, mom and dad. You all weren't getting much anyway, so it's fine. But, you know, there's something special about adoption. There's something unique and there's something, just think about the transition that takes place. I mean, I've, I've been in the courtroom twice with, with adopting these kids, and you know, it's a beautiful moment. And you get to see, you know, in, in one of them, Benny took the stand. I think it was in Julian's where he wanted to talk about what it would mean to adopt Julian into our family. And there's tears, and it's a special moment, and it's beautiful. But then there at, the, at the end of the day, the judge signs the order, the gavel hits, and it's done. And they're my kids. I get them, I'm taking them home. Nobody can take them from me. They get a new name. They, they now get my last name. They haven't had that all during the foster process. It's always been their other last name. But now, and they become, they get all the rights, all the privileges, everything that my natural born children get, they get. And that's what God says about you. That's what God says about you. And I think when we think about our identity, I think we lose this sometimes. I think we forget what that actually means. That it didn't cost God, well, it cost Jesus his life, but he was resurrected. And he did it because of his love for us, because he wanted to adopt us. He wanted us to be his sons. And I realize looking at this, there's, a, there's debate, you know, do we make this gender inclusive, sons and daughters? You don't want this to change here. Again, ladies, wasn't your, your time. Your dad was just going to marry you off to some man. That's where your value went. Sons got everything. Sons got the inheritance. Sons got the, the land and the fortune. And in this moment when Paul says we all become sons, he says, Patricia, you get the same as a son. There's no difference. And isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? As God's children we get to relate to God just like Jesus did and we get that beautiful expression there where he says he's given us a spirit that says what? Abba, Father, Abba, Father. What beauty is that? That he loves us and he accepts us and it's proof of our adoption. We're given the spirit and there's nothing we did to earn our adoption. There's nothing we'll do to dis it, to unearn it. You know, we see movies where a family goes to an orphanage and the kids put on their best clothes, and it's kind of like shopping for a child, which is disturbing in many ways. But, you know, there was nothing we did that God said, okay, you finally did enough. You look right. You act right. It's what Christ did on the cross. So I understand Paul's frustration because not only were they saying, let me do more to be saved, they're also willing to sacrifice their identity as children of God. And Paul's just like, don't do that. Don't sacrifice your identity. Why? Because if you miss that you are a child of God, you miss something crucial to understanding who you are. You begin living with this mistaken identity. You allow somebody to come in and take your identity and Paul is telling, telling them, stop thinking like some, the, the, the religious life is some transactional thing between you and God, like you're checking out with soda and chips at a convenience store. No. You see, often I think we want to move our identity in the realm of information. If I know enough, if I understand enough, but our identity was never based on the information we knew. It was always based on the intimacy with the Father, period. And this is critical Because when we understand our identity, that's where we find freedom, freedom, freedom to live, freedom to be, freedom to love. That's, and we're going to dig into that a bit more next week. Of course, the flip side of this is if we don't know who we are, we live without freedom. We live as slaves, slaves to performance, slaves to fear. And it can even keep us from stepping into opportunities to live in the way that God desires us to live. You know, and this is critical. Abba, Father. (laughs) I do want to make one comment. Paul does say something interesting in this passage about baptism, and we do baptism a couple times or several times a year. What's interesting is in the first century church, there would not have been anything, there would not be this idea of an unbaptized Christian. It, It was, if you were a follower of Jesus, you were baptized, and the language here, if you go back and read it, is really beautiful, saying that you were baptized into Christ. Doesn't mean Paul's saying baptism saves. That would negate the whole rest of the thing he's saying in Galatians. But he is saying there's this outward picture, this identity that says, I belong to them, they belong to me, we belong together as a family, children of God. So I close just with this final question here Who are you? Who are you? And then this one, and how does that shape your faith and shape? how you live. Let's pray. God words are an addict